Um, well, good morning, everybody. If you're listening with us this morning, my name is Ken. I'm the lead pastor here at Revolution. Um, and it's good to be with you here in our second week in a new space. Um, last Sunday, we began our journey through the Advent season, which is to say the season when we pause and we await the celebration of Jesus' birth on Christmas Day. And we began the season by talking about hope. And I want you to know that that wasn't my idea. We talked about hope because during Advent, we follow what's known as the Common Lectionary, which is a calendar of biblical teaching that many churches use to direct their sermons throughout the whole year. Revolution, we don't use it through the whole year, but we do use it these four weeks of Advent. And in the Common Lectionary, there is a pattern to these four weeks leading up to Christmas. You see the pattern in the candles here in front of us. Um, and each Sunday's teaching, is based on one of the four Jesus feelings, as we talked about them last week. We also honor these four feelings with these candles, and they are hope and love and joy and peace. And so the way this all works from my vantage point is that each week, this lectionary that we're following provides us, provides me with four verses from various parts of the Bible and the teacher's job, my job right now, is to explore how those verses work together to illuminate those four Jesus feelings and also to stir those feelings up within us. So last Sunday, we looked at a passage from an early church document called the Letter to the Hebrews, which encourages us to shift our understanding of hope from something that we look for in certain outcomes in our lives. We hope something will happen. To shift it from, from that way of thinking to being something that we feel instead when we consider the character of our God. If God really is who he says he is, then our eyes can stay on him. And that enables us to stop worrying, right? to stop fretting over whether our lives seem to be going in the direction that we intended for them to go or not. Which is all a way of saying that in a Christian worldview, hope isn't a prize that we're trying to get to. Hope is a person. Which means, of course, that the feeling of hope is something that we are always, um, that we always have access to, that's always available to us. It doesn't depend on where all this is going. It depends on the God who is near as we journey in that direction. Now, this week, we're here to talk about love. And figured out how this went in the first week, you know how all of these sermons go, right? Our goal today is to get to the same lesson, the same point, which is that the feeling of love is readily and abundantly available to us. But to open that door in our emotions, to feel that Jesus feeling, we need to, I think, first explore why it's sometimes hard to do and also, probably investigate why we try to shut the door to feeling love in the first place. So, the starting question is, what makes love so difficult? On the surface, this can seem like the easiest feeling of the four to unlock, right? By God's grace, love is perhaps the most widely felt feeling in all of the world. Most people have loved somebody else and have been loved by somebody else return. Certainly, there's more love in the world than there is hope, or than there is peace, than there, than there is joy. Love is attractive, and love is magnetic, and most of all, 
Love feels really good when you feel it. My first love, didn't prep this with my wife before I started talking about all this, but my first love was Lindsay Willis, yeah, who I knew in fifth grade, fifth grade crush. And I will never forget the first time that I hid in my parents' bathroom, like with the door shut and the telephone cord, like stretched from their nightstand, like up under the door, so that I could call the number that she had like given me at lunch at school that day. And then her mom answered, I hung up. And that was the end of my first love. <laughs> then I fell in love in high school with a girl named Jennifer, and then an older girl named Lauren. And then when I was a junior in college, I fell in love with my wife, Meredith, who I love still. And we use this word, this term, falling in love, because that's what it feels like, right? Your feet suddenly come out from under you, and all you can think about is being with this person, seeing this person as much as you can see them, just being around them, smiling at them is something you look forward to being able to do. And falling in love is something that just tends to happen to us. It's easy. It's the easiest thing in the world. But it is also, as almost all of you are short known, so, so short-lived. Falling is easy, right? But landing is hard. It leaves you vulnerable. And so I remember when Marys and I were first dating, I remember we would fight pretty often about who was more in love. Which, <laughs> you ever had this fight? But it was not a cute fight. That sounds cute, but it was not. I remember like long hours on the phone. So now we're past the cord under the door and we're to like cell phones. But we're also in the era of cell phone plans where like if you accidentally start the call at 8.59 instead of 9 o'clock, then you're going to get charged for all those minutes. And then I get the bill at the end of the month for like $400 because I remember I fought for two hours with Meredith over the phone beginning at 8.59 about who loved each other the most. And, and the issue is this, right? The more I realized how much I wanted to be with her, the more I became afraid that she might not want to be with me as intensely as much. There are issues of power at play when we love. And they're at play because our hearts are wide open and we know, we sense that we can be terribly, terribly hurt. And frankly, when this happens, it usually happens with somebody that we barely know. So when does love get hard? Like, well, it gets hard the first time we get it. It gets hard the first time that our vulnerability is met with cruelty more often like carelessness. When you were a kid, did you ever um, get dared to do something scary? Like, like ding dong ditch. Did you ding dong ditch? <laughs> or maybe uh, like there was like a creepy house in your neighborhood and like you and your friends would dare each other to like go up and like touch it. <coughs> it's a very to kill a mockingbird memory I'm having. <laughs> minor, minor, and my real life. But did that happen to you? I hope so. Maybe you and a friend, if this happened, you would like go to do it together, like taking the steps up towards the creepy abandoned house. And with each step you take, you are glancing over at your friend to see if they are still with you. The last thing you want is to be the only one who touches that house. I would contend that living in love can feel a lot like that. I want to go all the way up to ring the bell, but I do not want to do it if I'm alone. So what I think happens is we start to smother our own feelings, 
when we start to watch the other person? Are they still with us? And then we start to hold ourselves back if they're not as with us as we want them to be. And then something really terrible begins to happen because the other person is doing the same thing with us. They see our hesitancy. And they begin to wonder what we're feeling. And then they hold themselves back too. And before long, that lovely feeling of falling is replaced by feelings of caution, skepticism, and ultimately by fear. And it's that when love gets hard. So we start to close ourselves off and feeling. All that was a setup for asking the question, can the lectionary, can that collection of verses given to us this morning from Scripture show us how to open ourselves back up? Well, yes, I think the answer is yes. I'll spoil the ending there. I think they'll work. But they're weird. Our first passage comes from the Gospel of Mark, and it is a decidedly odd way to start a conversation about love. Mark writes, The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And so, John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, Proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Like I said, this is a weird way to get into the topic. I have to confess to you, I have always been pretty puzzled by John the Baptist. I never gave any good answers in seminary about what this guy is up to. I don't know why Jesus needs a hype man to like go ahead of him. I don't know why God would need a person, a regular person, to make Jesus' paths straight. I don't know what that means to make his paths straight. And most of all, I am confused about why telling everybody around to repent of their sin is the way God wants to introduce all of us to a relationship with him. Because, in my own experience, it's not where I tend to start with folks, right? In my experience, People are generally more open to learning about Jesus when love comes first and not judgment. But I'll tell you what occurred to me for the first time this week. And it only occurred to me because my job is to try and see these connections here between John the Baptist and this feeling of love. Here is my idea. What if repentance isn't supposed to be something that we're afraid of? What if repentance is just another word for falling? little note section in your like handout and you can have pen. That's the thing to write down. What <laughs> if repentance is just another word for falling? Just like feeling love for the first time, I think feeling sorry for the first time is a one-way ticket to vulnerability. It's letting our guard down. It's what happens when we realize deeply and truly that doing things our own way and always putting ourselves first doesn't end up making us happy. I feel sorry when I see in someone else's face that a decision that I probably made without even really thinking about it might have worked out for me, but it didn't work out for them. But I hurt them. When I see that in their face, I suddenly wish I hadn't. 
Now, the trick, though, is that those are all internal feelings. But repentance takes things a step further. Repentance transforms those sorry feelings into actions and into words, which is to say, then, that repentance is something that opens up a door. It takes a step forward towards that spooky house, whether the person that we're with is coming with us or not. Which means, I think, that repentance is a leap of faith. Repentance is a choice to fall again. There is a terrible line from the movie Love Story that is now ancient, so you probably haven't seen it, but maybe you've heard the line. Love means never having to say you're sorry. What are they talking about? <laughs> that is the opposite of how the thing works. Saying you're sorry is how you choose to keep loving. It's an act of radical and intentional vulnerability. It is falling again. And it is hoping that somebody is going to choose to fall with you. John the Baptist showed up first to invite people to unlock the doors that they have shut in their hearts towards God and to choose to be vulnerable again. To stop looking at each other cautiously to see if anybody else is still moving, if anybody else feels bad about how things are going. To let their sorry feelings transform into words and actions no matter what's going to come next. When the Messiah comes, which is what the, the Making the Way Straight is all about, when the Messiah comes, people need to be ready to be loved by him. And if our walls are still up and all of our doors are still shut, then we're not ready, and we risk missing out. The question, of course, is like, can we really do this? Can't we trust Jesus to show up and to fall in love with us? The lectionary takes an even stranger path than the one it just took in the next verses, because it pairs this discussion of John the Baptist and his call to repentance with a letter written many, many years later by the Apostle Peter. And in this letter, Peter is speaking to the early churches, and he writes this. But do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as something of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. Now, all of my life, I have read this verse and focused exclusively on the second half of that equivalency. A thousand years are like one day to God. A thousand years are like a day. And this idea that a thousand years are like a day to God has brought me comfort. Because when I feel like God is distant from me, or like the promises that God has made are taking too long, or like he's not with me or near to me in the ways that I want someone who loves me to be with me or near to me, then Peter reminds me that time works differently from God, and I can trust him, and he'll be back around. But like maybe, I mean, it's a, a day is a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. Like maybe he, in his mind, he's just been out of my life for like five minutes. But for me, it's an eternity, but he'll be back around. And thinking in that term, thinking in that way about God has brought me some comfort in hard seasons. I can trust that God's not gone forever. But this week, I've been challenged to think about the first one. Because it also says that for God, one day is like a thousand years. 
which means that God is within time as much as he's outside of time. It was a big left turn, Kenny, I know. Don't lose the plot, that's what you're saying to me. I'm not. I want to put these two things together. For God, each day is a thousand years. And what happens in Mark's gospel right after he preaches this call for people to repent and to wait on their Messiah? In the very next verse, Jesus shows up and he's baptized. His ministry formally begins. He calls his first disciples. And the reason he can do all of that is because he was already there. At this point in the story, Jesus is around 30 years old, which by my count is an age that takes around 11,000 days to get to. So if a day is 1,000 years to our God, that's like 11 million years that God was present. Those people John baptized felt sorry. They turned that sorrow into repentance and they took this leap of faith in the hope that God might love them enough to forgive them and to meet them in their hardships and to live with them. And what did they find once they did it? They found that God was already fallen. They'd been fallen forever. God was already vulnerable. Here's what I think this means, right? God's slowness that we read about in that verse from Peter isn't about us being able to hunt for him to circle back, which is what I always thought. Instead, his slowness is about him waiting around for us. In the Christmas story, for 30 years, the God of the universe chose to be at the mercy of his own creation. He spent some 280 days, which we're going to keep doing this weird God math, right? He spent 280 days, which is 280,000 years of God time, growing inside the body of his mother, living entirely at her mercy, feeling her heartbeat, living only through her love. He spent another thousand days after that being fed and like having himself cleaned up, learning to sit and to stand, learning to speak and to walk. He spent thousands more days holding his parents' hands when they crossed the street or sitting on his father's shoulders and listening to jokes from stories from uncles and aunts and grandparents. God grew up with us. God was, in every way, for an unfathomably long amount of time, vulnerable to us. And he was loved by his creation, and his creation loved him in return. For millennia in God time, God chose to trust us. And then he walked down to the Jordan River, was baptized by John asked us to trust him love cools in our hearts when we grow afraid that it isn't being reciprocated by somebody else feeling love isn't something that we forget how to do it's something that we hold ourselves back from doing because we're afraid it takes a spirit of repentance to open ourselves back up to it to unlock that door to choose to fall again 
But in this season, we can be comforted and encouraged to take those steps because we are being reminded that our God fell first. That even vulnerability is something that God led the way. That God is patient. He is so unfathomably patient with us as we tiptoe up to the edge of love. And he understands the hurt and the fears which make us so, so cautious about jumping. He wants nothing more. He wants nothing more than for us to rediscover the delight of being loved again. It's God who made love the most beautiful and the most abundant and available feeling in the whole world. We can have it in every moment. We can have it in every difficulty. We can have it in every uncertainty. It can comfort us. It can restore us. It can lead us to those other Jesus feelings. It can lead us to hope and joy and to peace. And it's something that just pours out torrentially from God. And God will do everything and has done everything to clear the way between his love and us. It is ours if we accept it. The Lord is not slow about his promise as something of slowness, but he is patient with you not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Which is to say to open up that final door and to be loved by Him. So as we close, this week I want to invite you to take inventory of yourself. Because I'm going to take inventory of myself. Where have we grown cool towards each other? Where have we grown cool towards each other? Where have we been wounded in ways that have led us to hold back, to put up walls, and to become cautious with our love? Are there relationships in our lives where regret, that internal feeling, needs to turn into repentance? And if there are, then can we let the love that we feel so abundantly from God give us courage and hope? Can it give us the boldness that we need to apologize, to unlock that? Or are there relationships in your life where you're on the other side of things, right? Where somebody has unlocked their own door and taken the step of repenting. But fear and past hurt are making you wary of forgiving them. And if so, is it possible for you to let the love that you feel so abundantly from God give you a spirit of grace and a capacity to trust? If not in another person, than in your own security with God? Or is there a relationship in your life where an apology is needed, is deserved, but for other reasons it can't or it won't come? Perhaps the person is simply never going to apologize. Perhaps they're no longer living and can't apologize. Can you share that grief of this unfinished tension of this, like, this coolness in your love, can you share the grief of that with a loving God and help let him help you learn to let go of that? To forgive, not for the other person's sake, but so your own doors can stay open and your own heart can remain soft. Love isn't something that we have to search for. Love is something that we are invited to let in. Love is falling. This morning, 
closing thought is just this. May we remember and feel that God has already trusted us so that we can continue to learn little by little how to trust him. To trust each other, too.